You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning, UBC. I, was, I had already pre-written that it's been a while since I've had the privilege of being with you in this way. And I'm so thrilled about that. <laughs> I'm thrilled that we now have Andy as our standard pulpit preacher. And I'm thrilled to still be invited in times of her well-earned absence and her well-earned presence from a different corner of the building in a different realm of her own humanity. <clears throat> and speaking of humanity, UBC, there is no stretch of imagination in this room or beyond wherein I could be conceived of as a tidy person. Sometimes when I describe the specificity of my squalor, I feel the need to prepare people that I'm not being humble or hyperbolic, so I've developed a sort of shorthand to let people know just how unhinged it can really be. I usually say something like, my car is going to be dirty, and I'm not saying that in a sorority girl, cheerleadery kind of way. I mean dirty, as in of and relating to dirt. <laughs> I want this would-be passenger or guest or potential companion in my life to know that I'm not indicating a few loose papers on a floorboard or folded laundry yet to be put away. I'm talking debris, rubble. I'm talking Sarah, Cynthia, Sylvia Stout, if you get the reference. If you don't, might I recommend the complete works of one Shel Silverstein. I grew up hearing that cleanliness is next to godliness, which is another way of saying I grew up hearing that I, in my natural state, was as far from God as a girl could ever be. I resented this message, of course. I resented being wrestled and wrangled. What I resented most, though, was being expected to agree that whichever holy ordering had been applied to my room, my home, my body, my brain, felt so much better now that it was the opposite of me. So many women smiling down upon me, waiting and wondering when I might add the jewel to their crowns for saving me from my slovenly self. But these mandated makeovers did not feel so much better for me. What felt better for me were environments that were in process with proof of existence, not ones where everything was closed, categorized, kept. What felt better to me were the rare adults who did not consider my spilling over and pouring out to be a threat and, yes, a sin. Perhaps a different girl would have believed more readily in this god of bleach and bins but I always carried at least a dim suspicion that it was not God who was disappointed in me, but rather God's often self-appointed representatives. It is interesting, though, our compulsion to get definitive about the hierarchy of godliness. That's an old-timey word for godlikeness, but I'm going to keep using it today. And this Phrasing, blank is next to godliness, creates a picture where God sits on a ledge overlooking the world, and there is only room for one companion with whom to share space. 
I suppose I could use this time to try and persuade you that actually messiness is what's closest to godliness. I'd have plenty of evidence. Look at what scripture says about the Holy Spirit. We don't know where it comes from or where it goes. She has no proper place, but everywhere at all times in all manners. A wild one, some have said. And Jesus can be kind of messy too. Like in this reading, when the disciples say, everyone is hunting for you, and his response is, let's get out of here. That's messy 101. Wrecking whole cities, upending systems of belief, and moving on to the next village without further explanation, that's classic Messiah mess right there. But that's not actually going to be my premise today, so maybe we should just go ahead and reread the passage, and I'll tell you where I do hope to go today. I'm actually going to back us up all the way up to verse 21 in Mark chapter 1 so that we get a little more Jesus, if that's okay with you. The writer says, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed, and they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And then we get to this today's part of the lectionary. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And finally... Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is hunting for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. There are, of course, so many things that could be explored with this little collection of stories. One scholar I read this week was primarily interested in the treatment of the unnamed mother-in-law and how her unnamedness shows us that Jesus was helping even people who others deemed unnoteworthy. Another was more interested in the messianic secret. Why does Jesus want to close the mouths of the demons that know who he is? We could talk about self-care today, demonic possession, spiritual healing, of course. But I guess what I have found most interesting over the last couple of weeks with this text are the variety of ways that Jesus is showing up in the spaces where he finds himself. At the beginning of the text I just read, he is downtown 
on stage, spectacular in his offerings. And then back at Simon Peter's house, he is gentle, warm, and intimate. And the next morning when he gets up, he is quiet, prayerful, solitary. So perhaps these passages in quick succession aim to protect us from the notion that we could ever fill in a singular blank when it comes to what is next to godliness. Because we have heard it here that to be spectacular is to be godly, and to be intimate is to be godly, and to choose solitude is to be godly too. So it isn't that cleanliness, for example, is somehow ungodly, There is something beautiful about being a person who has created a space for everything entrusted to them, who stewards all that they have been given, who honors their internal longing for order and some form of purity amidst all that is lost and unsavory in the world. It's just that godlikeness can never have just one best friend, despite the reality that so many of us have been led to believe that whatever we have most or least of just happens to be what God likes best or least too. I liked what Andy reminded us of a couple of weeks ago, that we at UBC are a people and a place with some expertise in resting and recovery, but we shouldn't let that be an idol and an absolute either. Resting and recovering is, of course, next to godliness, Pauses and breaks are good, and growth is naturally occurring in our solitude, in our relationships, in our community endeavors. But we have to acknowledge that growth does have some relationship to attention, doesn't it? So if we find ourselves in our 10th year of proclaiming that the real God and real growth is found in quiet places, or the real God and real growth is found shouting truth in the streets, or the real God and real growth comes exclusively in the safety of our own little families, perhaps there is more growth and, yes, more God awaiting us in some other less comfortable arenas. About, I think, 12-ish years ago, I moved to Abilene, Texas, where I had a very tight-knit group of friends. And I remember it was my friend Michelle who first helped me understand cleaning in a different way than I ever had before. Because up until that point, I had my own religious certainties. I considered authenticity or humility to be sitting on that ledge next to God. I considered an obsession with orderliness to be a symptom of vainglory. I had a sour taste in my mouth at the idea of presenting a polished front to people you invited into your home When hours before they arrived on the scene, it was utter chaos. And those were not entirely bad or wrong impulses, but they were still situated in a framework where there could only be one path, one place where true holiness resides. Michelle helped undo some of this rigidity for me. I saw in her a a genuine interest in hospitality. Straightening her home before a big party or small group wasn't about any classist or supremacist notions of propriety. Rather, when she prepared her space for guests, she did so with their comfort and safety in mind. Let's move this table so Sarah can get by with her crutches. I thought I'd use this dish because I know how much Elise loves it. And Chris has bad allergies, so I vacuumed all the carpets. 
Suddenly sweeping and dusting did not seem like punishments for the crime of having existed in a space, but rather a gracious act of restoration for the benefit of those we love. And probably I was able to grow up and away from my rigid assumptions because Michelle never tried to clean me up or convince me of any particular way to be hospitable. She just allowed me to bear witness to her loving kindness. You know, I joked about it earlier, but I think it's really important that at the end of the passage today, we see that Jesus is moving on. Because one of the hardest things about figuring out how to be godly, I think, is that we are woefully without the omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence of a deity. And though theologians might disagree on whether Jesus in human form was all-knowing or all all-powerful at all times in his embodiment, we at least understand that the act of having a body is definitionally limited in terms of time and space. A body is either in the synagogue or at the house with friends or in a solitary place, but not all three concurrently. A body is either in Nazareth or Capernaum or somewhere on the road in between. So it is nice to have a God who has been a human, because it means we have a God who has experienced the need to decide where and when to shift energies. So I wonder, for you and for me, what it is time to move on from, for now or for good. Perhaps it is a place, a person, perspective, or a practice that others have tried to force upon you for too long and against your inner knowing and and the actual godly thing to do is to turn away. Or perhaps it is time to move on from the rejection of a place, person, perspective, or practice now that you've gone down other paths and feel some new stirring to move. Either and both are growth. According to the lectionaries that I use to prepare when I'm preaching, we're in the fifth week after Epiphany. This season is a time of remembering the manifestation of God here on earth. And the people who trusted a sign in the sky enough to travel and meet God in a new place. To have an epiphany is to have a moment of great or sudden awareness. And I suppose as we enter a year of eclipses and elections and extra days on the already long calendar, that we will each be turning our attention to any signs that point toward our individual and collective growth. I wonder what spectacles await us in 2024, what relationships, what solitude we are being moved toward. And I pray that we are not too rigid or too comfortable, too holy or too cool to see them and to take them on as forms of godliness. Not so we can be better than our neighbors, but so that we can be bigger than our former selves. Will you pray with me? God, please visit us in all our limitations with all of your forms of grace. We ask for courage to be stargazers while it is yet dark finding and moving toward the light. We ask for wisdom 
to know when we are stuck and we ask for help from expected and unexpected places as we grow up and out and around from who we have been. At UBC, we take some time at this point in the service to sit in silence. We ask the animating spirit within and around us to correct anything I may have said incorrectly, and we anticipate together that the spirit might just do a new thing. <laughs> 